Welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey, you're about to listen to me read part three of our three-part release of Uber and Heller. If you want to hear the majority's decision or the concurring decision, head back to the last two episodes. I'm about to get into Justice Cote's dissent. Enjoy! The following are the reasons delivered by Justice Cote. Part 1. Introduction One of the most important liberties prized by a free people is the liberty to bind oneself by consensual agreement. Although times change and conventional models of work and business organization change with them, the fundamental conditions for individual liberty in a free and open society do not. Party autonomy and freedom of contract are the philosophical cornerstones of modern arbitration legislation. They inform the policy choices embodied in the Arbitration Act and the International Commercial Arbitration Act, one of which is that parties to a valid arbitration agreement should abide by their agreement. The parties to the agreement at issue in this appeal have bound themselves to settle any disputes arising under it through arbitration. My colleagues, Justices Abella and Rowe and Justice Brown, advance competing theories which impugn, to varying degrees, the choice of the law that governs the parties' contractual arrangements, the designated seat of the arbitration, and the selection of an international arbitral institution's procedural rules. My colleagues do not impeach the parties' agreement to submit disputes to arbitration, yet they find that the parties' commitment to do so is invalid. I cannot reconcile this result with the concepts of party autonomy, freedom of contract, legislative intent, and commercial practicalities. These important considerations, which ought to be taken into account, are disregarded in the majority's reasons. As I explained below, The Arbitration Act, the International Act, this Court's jurisprudence and compelling considerations of public policy require this Court to respect the party's commitment to submit disputes to arbitration. I would therefore allow the appeal. Part 2. Background. The appellants, Uber Technologies Incorporated, Uber Canada Incorporated, Uber BV and Razor Operations BV, collectively Uber, form part of a corporate group with strong connections to the Netherlands, including the corporate headquarters of Uber VV and Razor Operations BV. The corporate group has global operations in what has been styled the sharing economy. Uber develops and operates software applications, apps or an app, for users of GPS-enabled smartphones, which connect ride-seeking passengers with drivers and allow customers to have food delivered from restaurants. The food delivery business is known as Uber Eats, and the app delivered for it is known as the Uber Eats app. Uber licenses another app, the Driver app, to David Heller, the respondent. Mr. Heller delivers food from restaurants to customers who have ordered food through Uber Eats and is paid through the Driver app. A person in his position is commercially referred to as an Uber driver. He earns $400 to $600 Canadian per week driving for 40 to 50 hours. To become an Uber driver, Mr. Heller was required to enter into a service agreement with Razor Operations BV through the driver app. He was periodically required to agree to new versions of the service agreement and of an agreement subsequently signed with Uber Porter BV, which is not a party to this appeal. 
To accept the service agreement, Mr. Heller was required to scroll through the entire contract and click two buttons to indicate his acceptance. The driver app does not limit the time an Uber driver may take to review the service agreement before accepting. The parties do not suggest that there were any meaningful substantive differences between the various service agreements for the purposes of this appeal. I refer to the agreements collectively throughout these reasons as the service agreement. The service agreement includes a clause that provides that any dispute, conflict, or controversy arising in connection with the agreement is to be first submitted to mediation and, if mediation is unsuccessful, is to be finally resolved by arbitration, the arbitration clause. The arbitration clause adds the International Chamber of Commerce's Arbitration Rules Mediation Rules, developed by the International Court of Arbitration and the International Center for ADR, as amended from time to time, ICC rules, are to apply and designates Amsterdam, the Netherlands, as the place of arbitration, in the place of arbitration clause. The service agreement also includes a clause that provides that it is to be governed by and construed in accordance with the laws of the Netherlands. Uber offers a free internal dispute resolution mechanism which connects Uber drivers to customer support representatives. Ontario-based drivers may also visit a local support center referred to as Greenlight Hub to resolve disputes. It is noteworthy that Mr. Heller has raised over 300 complaints through Uber's internal procedure, most of which were resolved within 48 hours. The selection of the ICC rules in a mediation or arbitration agreement entails the administration of the proceedings by the ICC's autonomous dispute resolution bodies, the ICA and the International Center for ADR. The ICC rules provide for the payment of mandatory fees to these dispute resolution bodies for the administration of mediation and arbitration proceedings, which total $14,500 U.S. for a claim under $200,000 U.S. Mr. Heller commenced a proposed class proceeding in Ontario for $400 million Canadian, alleging that Uber drivers such as himself have been misclassified by Uber because they are employees who are entitled to the benefits and protections of Ontario's Employment Standards Act. Uber brought a motion to have Mr. Heller's proceedings stayed in favor of an arbitration pursuant to the Arbitration Clause and the International Act, or alternatively, the Arbitration Act. Applying the International Act, the Ontario Superior Court stayed Mr. Heller's action in favor of the arbitration. The Court of Appeal allowed the appeal and set the stay aside, holding that, if the drivers are employers, as is alleged, then the arbitration clause is illegally contracted out of an employment standard. In addition, the arbitration clause was found to be unconscionable at common law. Either conclusion meant that the arbitration clause is invalid under 7.2 of the Arbitration Act, such as the mandatory stay does not apply. Part 3. Legislation. The ESA includes the following provisions. 1.1. In this Act, employment standards means a requirement of prohibition under this Act that applies to an employer for the benefit of an employee. 5.1. Subject to Section Sub 2, no employer or agent of an employer and no employee or agent of an employee shall contract out of or waive an employment standard, and any such contracting out or waiver is void. 5.2. If one or more provisions in an employment contract or in another act that directly relates to the same subject matter as an employment standard provide a greater benefit to an employee than the employment standard, the provision or provisions in the contract or act apply and the employment standard does not apply. 5.11. 1. 
an employer shall not treat, for the purposes of this act, a person who is an employee of the employer as if the person were not an employee under this act. 96.1. A person alleging that this act has been or is being contravened may file a complaint with the ministry in a written or electronic form approved by the director. 98.1. An employee who commences a civil proceeding with respect to any alleged failure to pay wages or to comply with Part 8 benefit plans may not file a complaint with respect to the same matter or have such a complaint investigated. The Arbitration Act includes the following provisions. 6. No court shall intervene in matters governed by this Act except for the following purposes in accordance with this Act. 1. To assist the conducting of arbitrations. 2. To ensure that arbitrations are conducted in accordance with arbitration agreements. 3. To prevent unequal or unfair treatment of parties to arbitration agreements. 4. To enforce awards. 7. 1. If a party to an arbitration agreement commences a proceeding in respect of a matter to be submitted to arbitration under the agreement, the court in which the proceeding is commenced shall, on the motion of another party to the arbitration agreement, stay the proceeding. 7.2. However, the court may refuse to stay the proceeding in any of the following cases. 1. A party entered into the arbitration agreement while under legal incapacity. 2. The arbitration agreement is invalid. Three. The subject matter of the dispute is not capable of being the subject of arbitration under Ontario law. 4. The motion was brought with undue delay. 5. The matter is a proper one for default or summary judgment. 17.1. An arbitral tribunal may rule on its own jurisdiction to conduct the arbitration and may in that connection rule on objections with respect to the existence or validity of the arbitration agreement. 17.2. If the arbitration agreement forms part of another agreement, it shall, for the purposes of a ruling on jurisdiction, be treated as an independent agreement that may survive even if the main agreement is found to be invalid. 17.8. If the arbitral tribunal rules on an objection as a preliminary question, a party may, within 30 days after receiving notice of the ruling, make an application to the court to decide the matter. The International Act includes the following provisions. 5. Subject to this Act, the Model Law on International Commercial Arbitration, adopted by the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law on 21st of June 1985, as amended by the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law on the 7th of July 2006, set out in Schedule 2, has force of law in Ontario. 9. Where, pursuant to Article 2.3 of the Convention, or Article 8 of the Model Law, a court refers the parties to arbitration, the proceedings of the court are stayed with respect to the matters to which the arbitration relates. Schedule 2 of the International Act implements the United Nations Commission on International Trade Laws, UNCITRAL Model Law on International Commercial Arbitration, which includes the following provisions. Article 1. Scope of Application. Sub 1. This law applies to international commercial arbitration, subject to any agreement in force between this state and any other state or states. Article 8. Arbitration agreement and substantive claim before court. A court before which an action is brought in a matter which is the subject of an arbitration agreement shall, if a party so requests not later than when submitting his first statement on the substance of the dispute, refer the parties to arbitration unless it finds that the agreement is null and void, inoperative, or incapable of being performed. 
Article 16, Competence of Arbitral Tribunal to Rule on its Jurisdiction, Sub 1. The Arbitral Tribunal may rule on its own jurisdiction, including any objections with respect to the existence or validity of the arbitration agreement. For that purpose, an arbitration clause which forms part of a contract shall be treated as an agreement independent of other terms of a contract. A decision by the Arbitral Tribunal that the contract is null and void shall not entail ipso jure the invalidity of the arbitration clause. The Courts of Justice Act includes a provision which addresses stays of proceedings. 106. A court on its own initiative or on a motion by any person, whether or not a party, may stay any proceeding in the court on such terms as are considered just. The part of the ICC rules that deals with arbitration includes the following provisions. Article 18, Place of Arbitration. The place of the arbitration shall be fixed by the court unless agreed upon by the parties. The arbitral tribunal may, after consultation with the parties, conduct hearings and meetings at any location it considers appropriate, unless otherwise agreed by the parties. The arbitral tribunal may deliberate at any location it considers appropriate. Article 22, Conduct of the Arbitration. The arbitral tribunal and the parties shall make every effort to conduct the arbitration in an expeditious and cost-effective manner, having regard to the complexity and value of the dispute. In all cases, the arbitral tribunal shall act fairly and impartially and ensure that each party has a reasonable opportunity to present its case. Article 38, Decision as to the Costs of Arbitration. At any time during the arbitral proceedings, the arbitral tribunal may make decisions on costs other than those to be fixed by the court in order payment. The final award shall fix the costs of the arbitration and decide which of the parties shall bear them or in what proportion they shall be borne by the parties. Appendix 6 to the ICC arbitration rules contains a set of procedural rules for the expedited conduct of arbitration, which include the following provisions. Article 3, Proceedings. The arbitral tribunal shall have discretion to adopt such procedural measures as it considers appropriate. In particular, the arbitral tribunal may, after consultation with the parties, decide not to allow requests for document production or to limit the number, length, and scope of written submissions and written witness evidence, both fact witnesses and experts. The arbitral tribunal may, after consulting the parties, decide to dispute solely on the basis of the documents submitted by the parties with no hearing and no examination of witnesses or experts. When a hearing is to be held, the Arbitral Tribunal may conduct it by video conference, telephone, or similar means of communication. Part 4. Issues The overall issue in this appeal is whether Uber's motion for a stay of Mr. Heller's proceeding should be granted, pursuant to either Section 9 of the International Act or Section 7.1 of the Arbitration Act. A number of related questions arise. Which arbitration legislation governs Uber's motion for a stay? Is the Arbitration Act null and void under the International Act or invalid under the Arbitration Act? Should a court or arbitral tribunal rule first on the validity of the arbitration clause? What conditions, if any, should the court impose on the stay of proceedings? Part 5. Analysis. Subpart A. Overview. I would allow the appeal and grant Uber's motion for a stay of proceedings on the condition that Uber advances the funds needed to initiate the ICA arbitration proceedings. 
I begin my analysis by considering historical trends in Canadian arbitration law, which was initially characterized by a judicial attitude of overt hostility to arbitration. In recent decades, though, Canadian arbitration law has seen a dramatic reversal, as arbitration has been embraced and Canada has been transformed into a world leader in arbitration jurisprudence. I fear, however, that in taking the approaches they do, my colleagues risk abdicating Canada's leadership role in arbitration law. Next, I turn to the concrete doctrinal problems posed by this appeal. I consider which arbitration legislation governs Uber's motion for a stay. While I conclude that the International Act applies, the ultimate conclusions I reach would be the same under the Arbitration Act. I then consider whether the arbitration clause is either null and void or invalid, depending on which legislation is concerned. A primary sub-issue is whether a court or the arbitral tribunal should rule first on these questions, and this turns on whether Mr. Heller's arguments can be characterized as raising questions of law or questions of mixed law and fact which require only a superficial review of the documentary evidence in the record in order to establish the relevant factual aspects. I find that his arguments based on the doctrine of unconscionability and on the ESA raise questions of mixed law and fact which cannot be decided on the basis of a superficial review of the evidence and should therefore be decided by the arbitrator. These conclusions would be sufficient to decide the appeal, but because my colleagues go further and consider Mr. Heller's arguments on their merits, I also comment on the merits of his challenge in respect to the validity of the arbitration clause. I find that the testimonial evidence before the court is insufficient to support a finding that the arbitration clause is unconscionable. I also find that the arbitration clause is neither inconsistent with the ESA nor contrary to public policy, as Justice Brown would find. I conclude by considering the possible remedies on a motion for a stay. The majority appears to believe that the courts face a stark choice between rigidly enforcing what they perceive to be a one-sided arbitration agreement and finding that the entire arbitration agreement is invalid. I suggest that at least two remedies are available to a court hearing a motion for a stay in order to alleviate any perceived unfairness. One, a conditional stay of proceedings, and two, severance of an unenforceable term of an arbitration agreement. These remedies would enable courts to safeguard procedural fairness in a manner consistent with the principle of party autonomy and with the legislature's intent. I turn now to the broader historical and jurisprudential context of this appeal. Subpart B, Historic Trends in Canadian Arbitration Law, From Overt Hostility to World Leadership. Until the 1980s, Canadian courts displayed hostility to arbitration, treating it as a second-tier class of dispute settlement. The Canadian judiciary's hostility was inherited from the English common law which held that arbitration agreements had the effect of ousting the jurisdiction of courts and were therefore void on the basis that they were contrary to public policy. This hostility was exemplified by National Gypsum Company Incorporated and Northern Sales Limited, in which this court held that an agreement to submit disputes to arbitration in New York was unenforceable on the basis of public policy. Beginning in the 1980s, however, this court recognized that the prevailing attitude was misconceived and began to chart a new course for arbitration law jurisprudence in Canada. In Zodiac International Productions Incorporated and Polish People's Republic, this court distanced itself from the approach it had taken in national gypsum and advanced a more favorable position on arbitration. 
in Sport Masca Incorporated in Zitrer, it recognized that the judiciary's hostility to arbitration had unfortunately inhibited the legal community's interest in arbitration, thereby inhibiting the growth of this form of dispute resolution. Around the same time, legislatures began to intervene to further promote the use of the arbitration. Over time, courts, including this court, began to take notice that the legislatures had adopted a pro-arbitration stance. In Desputeaux and Edition Chouette, this court acknowledged that arbitration is a legitimate form of dispute resolution and that this had been fully recognized and endorsed by the legislature and its own jurisprudence. In Seidel, at paragraph 2, this court stated that, quote, absent legislative intervention, the courts will generally give effect to the terms of a commercial contract freely entered into, even a contract of adhesion, including an arbitration clause, end quote. It added that it had both recognized and welcomed the virtues of commercial arbitration. Finally, in Wellman, this court endorsed the modern approach that sees arbitration as an autonomous, self-contained, self-sufficient process pursuant to which the parties agree to have their disputes resolved by an arbitrator, not by the courts. As a result of legislative and judicial encouragement, Canada is now a world leader in arbitration law. The jurisprudence of Canadian courts features prominently with that of other leading UNCITRAL model law jurisdictions, such as Germany, Australia, Hong Kong, and Singapore, and the United Nations Commission on International Trade Laws, UNCITRAL 2012 Digestive Case Law on the Model Law in International Commercial Arbitration. Canada sits on the cusp of becoming a world-class seat for arbitration, with modern arbitration legislation and a thriving community of dedicated practitioners, scholars, and arbitrators. My colleagues threatened to roll back the tide of history and Canadian jurisprudence to the days when judges were overtly hostile to arbitration. They declined to follow the rule of systematic referral to arbitration that was clearly established in Dell Computer Corporation and Union des Commateurs. Instead, they add to the grounds for judicial intervention in the arbitration process by proposing new exceptions to the rule of systemic referral. Finally, they suggest that regardless of the legislative intent embodied in the Arbitration Act and the International Act, judicial respect for arbitration is predicated upon the accessibility of arbitration in a given case. As a result, my colleagues' approaches call into question this court's commitment to encouraging the use of arbitration and to the modern hands-off approach to arbitration it's so recently endorsed in Wellman. Canada's role as a world leader in arbitration law may now be in doubt. Subpart C, which arbitration legislation applies to Uber's motion for a stay? Mr. Heller argues that the Arbitration Act applies because employment disputes are excluded from the scope of the UNCITRAL model law, which is incorporated into Ontario by the International Act. The International Act applies to arbitrations which are international and commercial. In this appeal, the arbitration is international because the parties have their residences or places of business in different countries. Therefore, the applicability of the International Act turns on whether the party's relationship is properly characterized as being commercial in nature. In my view, a court should approach this issue by analyzing the nature of the party's relationship on the basis of a superficial review of the record as opposed to characterizing the nature of the dispute 
solely on the basis of the pleadings. An interpretive footnote in the model law explains that the term commercial is to be given a wide interpretation so as to cover all matters arising from all relationships of a commercial nature. The footnote also contains a non-exhaustive list of covered transactions, which includes licensing agreements. This implies that the focus of the analysis is on the nature of the relationship created by the transaction. The weight of the Canadian jurisprudence on the scope of the model law has focused on the nature of the relationship and not on the dispute. For example, in Borowski and Felder, Justice Murray found that the model law did not apply to the case before him because the evidence established that the relationship between the parties was that of master and servant, an employment relationship. In other cases, the model law was found to be inapplicable because the plaintiff's status as an employee was not in dispute, thereby obviating any need to characterize the relationship. In United Mexican States and Mediclad Corporation, by contrast, Justice Tyso found that the model law did apply despite the fact that the dispute was not itself commercial in nature because the relationship between the parties was commercial. Similarly, in Caveret Steel and Crane Limited and Cone Corporation, Appeal Justice Karens held that a dispute over liability and tort falls within the scope of the model law despite its non-contractual nature, quote, so long as the relationship that creates liability is one that can fairly be described as commercial, end quote. Labor and employment disputes are said to be excluded from the scope of the term commercial. However, this does not shift the focus of the analysis from the nature of the relationship to the nature of the dispute between the parties. Rather, its effect is to exclude arbitrations arising in the context of employment and labor relationships from the scope of the model law. The focus of the analysis is still on the nature of the relationship. My colleagues, Justices Isabella and Rowe, take the opposite position, arguing that the analysis turns on the nature of the dispute, not on the relationship. However, the author of the learned treatise upon which Justices Abella and Rowe rely in support of their view actually takes a position diametrically opposed to their approach to the applicability of the model law. Gary B. Bourne does present the proposition that consumer and employment disputes are excluded from the model law, but as an alternative to his own view. He then rebuts it by pointing to the fact that the list of covered transactions is non-exhaustive and, quote, expressly extends to carriage of passengers and consulting agreements, which very arguably include at least certain consumer or employment relationships, end quote. Bourne's assessment is that the model law includes within its coverage both consumer and employment matters, subject to any specific non-arbitrability rules adopted in particular states. His work is therefore of no assistance to my colleagues on this point. On the contrary, he expresses the opinion that the term commercial applies without regard to the nature or form of the party's claims and looks only to the character of their underlying transaction or conduct. A superficial review of the documentary evidence reveals that the underlying transaction between Uber and Mr. Heller is commercial in nature. The service agreement expressly states that it does not create an employment relationship. Instead, it is a software licensing agreement, which, as I mentioned above, is a type of transaction that is identified as coming within the scope of the model law. But Mr. Heller submits that he is an employee of Uber. While the party's characterization of their relationship is not determinative in a dispute as to whether an employment relationship has been misclassified, 
a court hearing a motion for a stay should not decide complex questions of mixed law and fact which require a more than superficial review of the documentary evidence in the record. This court cannot decide that the service agreement creates an employment relationship without usurping the role of the arbitral tribunal. I therefore agree with the motion judge, Justice Perel, that until the arbitrator rules otherwise, the court should take the parties at their word that the service agreements are not employment contracts. On the basis of a superficial review, I am satisfied that the party's relationship is both commercial and international within the meaning of the model law. As a result, I conclude that the International Act applies to Uber's motion for a stay. Because my colleagues are of the view that the Arbitration Act applies, however, I will continue to address both statutes where relevant. I reiterate that the analysis that follows would not change were I to conclude that the Arbitration Act applied instead of the International Act. Subpart D. Is the Arbitration Clause null and void under the International Act or invalid under the Arbitration Act? Mr. Heller does not contest that this dispute falls within the scope of the Arbitration Clause, which means that the criteria for a stay under both the International Act and the Arbitration Act are met. A court hearing a motion for a stay and for a referral to arbitration may nonetheless dismiss the motion if the arbitration agreement is found to be null and void or invalid. Mr. Heller submits that the arbitration clause is invalid or null and void because it amounts to an unlawful contracting out of the ESA and because it offends the doctrine of unconscionability. I will address his arguments below after first considering some preliminary questions concerning the correct analytical approach to such a challenge. Sub 1. Doctrine of the Separability of Arbitration Agreements Mr. Heller challenges the validity of the arbitration clause itself and not of the service agreement as a whole. He rests his argument on the proposition that arbitration clauses embedded in contracts should be treated as independent agreements. Mr. Heller's submissions, therefore, give this court an occasion to recognize and affirm the doctrine of the separability of arbitration agreements. I would do so readily. The doctrine of separability is one of the conceptual and practical cornerstones of arbitration law, which plays an important role in ensuring the efficacy and efficiency of the arbitration process. According to this doctrine, an arbitration clause should be analyzed as a separate agreement that is ancillary or collateral to the underlying contract. Put another way, an arbitration clause should be considered autonomous and judicially independent from the main contract in which it is contained. The separability doctrine is a logical extension of the rule created by this court in Dell, which states that a challenge to an arbitral tribunal's jurisdiction should be considered first by the tribunal itself because arbitral tribunals have the competence to determine their own jurisdiction. I will refer to this holding as the rule of systemic referral. The same statutory provisions which ensure an arbitral tribunal's competence to determine its own jurisdiction also ensure its competence to determine the invalidity of the underlying contract by providing that the arbitration agreement should be treated as an independent agreement for the purposes of such a determination. Given that the legislature saw fit to give the arbitral tribunal the competence to decide these questions, the legislative choice embodied in Section 17.2 should revive the same respect as the one embodied in 17.1. The relationship between this competence-competence principle and the separability is highlighted by the fact that they are both provided for in Article 16.1 of the Model Law. 
National courts around the world nearly uniformly recognize the separability doctrine, even when no legislation provides for it. In addition, some superior and appellate courts in Canada have already recognized the doctrine. The Arbitration Act and the Model Law codify one aspect of the doctrine, that is, the preservation of an arbitral tribunal's jurisdiction to rule on the validity of the underlying contract on the basis that the arbitration agreement is to be treated as a separate and independent contract for such purposes. However, the separability doctrine has wider significance. More broadly, the doctrine holds that an arbitration agreement is invalidated only by a defect relating specifically to the arbitration agreement itself, and not by one relating merely to the underlying contract in which that agreement was found. In effect, the separability doctrine immunizes the arbitration clause, protecting it from flaws or defects in the underlying contract. Nonetheless, there may be instances where the same circumstances which impugn the validity of the underlying contract also call the validity of the arbitration agreement into question. Recognizing the separability doctrine has a number of implications for this appeal. For the purposes of Mr. Haller's challenge to the validity of the arbitration clause, the commitment to submit disputes to arbitration should be considered to be an independent agreement which is separate from the service agreement. Therefore, while the choice of law clause and the arbitration clause appear together in the service agreement, the choice of law clause applies to the service agreement as a whole and must be analyzed separately from the arbitration clause. Further implications are addressed below. Sub 2. Law governing the substantive validity of the arbitration clause. The choice of law clause selects Dutch law to govern the service agreement. Owing to the separability doctrine, however, the validity of an arbitration agreement may be governed by different substantive law than one that governs the validity of the underlying contract in which the arbitration clause is found. Nonetheless, not much turns on this distinction in this appeal for two reasons. The first is that the arbitration clause is likely governed by Dutch law because the law of the underlying contract and the seat of the arbitration are generally considered to be persuasive factors in determining the law applicable to the arbitration agreement. The law of the arbitration clause is therefore likely Dutch law because of the choice of law clause and the place of arbitration clause, although I express no firm conclusion in this regard at this juncture. The second is that the parties have failed to prove Dutch law, in the absence of evidence proving a foreign law, the court may apply the law of the forum. For the purposes of this appeal, therefore, this court may apply the law of Ontario to determine whether the arbitration clause is substantively valid. I wish to stress, however, that a court hearing a challenge to the validity of an arbitration agreement, even under domestic arbitration legislation, should not presume that the law of the forum always governs the substantive validity of the arbitration agreement. Neither should a court assume that the law applicable to the arbitration agreement is the same as the law that applies to the underlying contract. Sub 3. Rule of Systematic Referral to Arbitration Mr. Heller's arguments against Uber's motion raise the same question as the one this court considered in Dell. Which body should decide first, a court or an arbitral tribunal? Given that the International Act implements the model law, the rule of systematic referral from Dell clearly applies to motions brought under the Act. The rule of systematic referral from Dell also applies to the Arbitration Act, which is largely based on the Uniform Arbitration Act, drafted by the Uniform Law Conference of Canada. This is because, despite slight modifications for the purpose of domestic arbitrations, 
the organization and the principles of the Uniform Arbitration Act are recognizably those of the model law. In particular, the Arbitration Act provides that an arbitral tribunal has the competence to rule on its own jurisdiction, including the ability to rule on challenges to the validity of the arbitration agreement. Thus, Dell applies regardless of which arbitration legislation governs Uber's motion for a stay. In Dell, this court interpreted Quebec's legislation implementing the model law in the context of the Civil Code of Quebec. In establishing a general rule that in any case involving an arbitration clause, a challenge to the arbitrator's jurisdiction must be resolved first by the arbitrator. A court may depart from the rule of systematic referral to arbitration only if the challenge is based solely on a question of law or a question of mixed law and fact that requires only a superficial consideration of the documentary evidence. The court must also be satisfied that the jurisdictional challenge is not a delaying tactic and will not unduly impair the conduct of the arbitration proceeding. Contrary to Justice Isabella and Rowe's view, expressed at paragraph 36, this court has clearly decided on the meaning of the superficial review. A review is not superficial if the court is required to review testimonial evidence. Put another way, the court must not, in ruling on the arbitrator's jurisdiction, consider the facts leading to the application of the arbitration clause. Throughout her reasons in Dell, Justice Deschamps carefully distinguished between the types of evidence a court can consider in ruling on a motion for a stay. She stated that when a challenge to the validity of the arbitration agreement requires a court to consider factual evidence, the court should normally refer the case to arbitration. The exception she mentioned for questions of mixed law and fact applies only if the questions of fact require only superficial consideration of the documentary evidence in the record. Justice Deschamps then explained that one of the issues raised in the appeal required more than a superficial review of the record because it required a review of the documentary and testimonial evidence. Thus, testimonial evidence is not seen as being reviewable on a superficial basis and should be left for an arbitral tribunal. In the language of the prima facie test which this court sought to incorporate into the analysis in Dell, the nullity of an arbitration agreement is manifest if, having regard to the contract in which it is found, the question of the validity of the arbitration agreement is a primarily legal one that can be answered without recourse to further evidence. In the cases in which it has applied the rule of systematic referral, this court has remained faithful to this limit on the kind of evidence which may be considered on a motion for a stay. Dr. Muroff challenged the validity of an arbitration agreement in his cell phone contract with Rogers Wireless on the basis that it was abusive. The court held that resolving the challenge would require more than a superficial review of the documentary evidence. Determining whether the arbitration agreement was abusive would have required the court to look beyond the documentary evidence, given that an arbitration clause is not necessarily abusive simply because it appears in a consumer contract. This court, therefore, declined to entertain Dr. Murroff's challenge because it was dependent on testimonial evidence. Subsequently, in Seidel, the court entertained a challenge to the validity of an arbitration agreement in a case in which a superficial review of the documentary evidence in the record was itself sufficient to establish the applicability of the legislation the court relied on to find that the arbitration clause was invalid. Therefore, this court has applied the superficial review standard consistently since first articulating it in Dell until this appeal. 
The new standard for superficial review introduced by Justices Abella and Rowe allows for the production and review of considerable testimonial evidence. Superficial review will now incorporate a searching review of the record for the purpose of determining whether findings of fact can be made on the basis of apparently undisputed testimonial evidence, and this review might even involve a cross-examination. This is a marked departure from the clear principles laid down in Dell, which were followed in Rogers and Seidel, and I therefore cannot accept it. This point is important because this appeal should not turn on the rule of systematic referral. More than a superficial review of the documentary evidence is required because Mr. Heller's arguments, like those of my colleagues Justices Abella and Rowe and Justice Brown, are dependent upon testimonial evidence regarding Mr. Heller's financial position, his personal characteristics, the circumstances of the formation of the contract, and the amount that would likely be at issue in a dispute to which the arbitration clause applies. Further, my colleagues avoid the operation of the rule of systematic referral by creating new exceptions to Dell, which permit them to consider the testimonial evidence in the record. However, even if that evidence could properly be considered by a court ruling on a motion for a stay, it is lacking in many important respects. For example, there is no evidence that Mr. Heller was in a state of necessity or was incapacitated when he entered into the agreement. He had an unlimited amount of time to review the agreement before accepting it. His evidence suggests that he is capable of understanding the significance of the arbitration clause. As counsel for Uber demonstrated in cross-examination, Mr. Heller is sufficiently knowledgeable that he was able to quickly grasp the implications of a change in Uber's fee payment structure and voice his concerns through the media. He also showed considerable sophistication in lodging over 300 complaints through Uber's internal dispute resolution procedure. The record is simply not sufficient for this court to conclude with certainty that Mr. Heller was vulnerable throughout the contracting process. In addition, my colleagues assert that the arbitration clause is inaccessible to Mr. Heller despite the fact that there is no evidence in the record regarding the comparative availability of third-party funding for arbitration or litigation. This court also has no indication as to what fraction of the $400 million Canadian dollars being sought in Mr. Heller's proceeding represents his individual claim against Uber. Nor is there any evidence regarding the comparative cost of pursuing a class action. Although I note that the costs awarded in the Court of Appeal, $20,000, were greater than the amount of the ICC fees, approximately $19,000, and the parties are not even at the certification stage of the class proceeding. I am of the view that all this evidence is necessary because I find it highly unlikely that the cost of pursuing this claim in the courts whether individually or by way of a class action, would be very much less than the ICC fees. Indeed, such a proceeding might even be more costly. It is therefore not the absolute dollar value of the ICC fees which is at issue. I think what is implicit in my colleagues' arguments about accessibility is an unstated assumption about the comparative accessibility of pursuing a class action. Given the existence of a specialized third-party litigation funding industry, and a lawyer fee structure for the pursuit of such claims. However, such assumptions should be grounded in evidence. As the record currently stands, this court cannot say on the basis of the testimonial evidence that the arbitration clause makes dispute resolution any less accessible than litigation. In my view, colleagues' efforts to avoid the operation of the rule of systematic referral to arbitration reflects the same historical hostility to arbitration 
which the legislature and the court have sought to dispel. The simple fact is that the parties in this case have agreed to settle any disputes through arbitration. This court should not hesitate to give effect to that arrangement. The ease with which my colleagues dispense with the arbitration clause on the basis of the thinnest of factual records causes me to fear that the doctrines of unconscionability and public policy are being converted into a form of ad hoc judicial moralism or palm tree justice that will sow uncertainty and invite endless litigation over the enforceability of arbitration agreements. This is in fact what the Arbitration Act and the model law were designed to avoid. Sub 4. Proposed Exceptions to the Rule of Systematic Referral I will now address the exceptions to the Rule of Systematic Referral proposed by the Court of Appeal as well as Justices Abella and Rowe and Justice Brown. I will confine my comments on Justice Brown's approach to his contention that Section 96 of the Constitution Act requires such an exemption. A. Systematic Referral and Challenges to the Validity of the Arbitration Agreement the Court of Appeal appears to have held that the rule of systematic referral is confined to challenges relating to the scope of arbitration agreements, and therefore does not apply to challenges to the validity of such agreements. I disagree. The rule of systematic referral is based on the arbitral tribunal's competence to rule on its own jurisdiction. Article 16.1 of the Model Law and Section 17.1 of the Arbitration Act both state that the arbitral tribunal has competence to rule on objections with respect to the existence or validity of the arbitration agreement. In Seidel and in Rogers Wireless, this court applied the rule of systematic referral to challenges to the validity of the arbitration agreements that were at issue. There is accordingly no basis in the words of either statute for excluding the rule of systematic referral from a challenge to the validity of an arbitration clause, and there is in fact authority from this court to the contrary. B. Systematic Referral and Accessibility Justices Abella and Rowe proposed to create an exception to the rule of systematic referral that would apply where an arbitration agreement is deemed to be too costly or otherwise inaccessible. With great respect, I am of the view that this court should not create this exception to the rule of systematic referral. I also do not agree that if such an exception were to be created, it should be applied on the basis of the record before the court. First and foremost, the rule of systematic referral is the product of an exercise of interpretation of the model law. This means that any exception to the rule must also be a product of statutory interpretation. However, Justices Abella and Rowe do not purport to justify their proposed exception with reference to the words, the scheme, the context, the object, and the purpose of either statute, as this court's jurisprudence requires. The exception they propose rests instead on policy considerations related to access to justice. While I appreciate the importance of those considerations, I am respectfully of the view that they cannot be used to make the Arbitration Act say something it does not say. Further, because Justices Abella and Rowe propose this exception as a modification of the Dell framework itself, the exception must also be justified on the basis of an interpretation of the model law which was interpreted in Dell. Second, the dissenting justices in Dell proposed a flexible approach to referral according to which the courts would have retained some discretion to fully entertain a challenge to an arbitration agreement's validity. The majority chose not to adopt this discretionary approach 
preferring instead a rule of systematic referral to arbitration in any cases involving an arbitration clause. Justices Abella and Rowe's exception would transform the rule of systematic referral by turning it into a rule of situational referral that is dependent on the circumstances of a given case. The situational carve-out of part of the rule of systematic referral would add to the grounds for judicial intervention in the arbitration process and thus create a perverse incentive to engage in parasitic litigation as a delaying tactic. It would be open to future courts to endlessly identify issues which constitute unforeseen circumstances that Dell did not contemplate, thus sowing uncertainty and giving rise to incessant litigation with respect to the degree of scrutiny to apply when ruling on a motion for a stay. Inviting litigiousness is more likely to thwart access to justice than to advance it, because litigiousness increases the time and cost of dispute resolution. Third, Justices Abella and Rowe argue that courts are well positioned to mitigate the risk of spurious arguments being advanced against the validity of an arbitration agreement by awarding costs and requiring security for costs. However, this court contemplated the risk of spurious arguments being used as a delaying tactic in Dell and decided that the scope of review on a motion for a stay should be confined to a superficial review of the documentary evidence in order to counteract such tactics. If costs awards were an effective deterrent against delaying tactics, there would be no need to confine the scope of the review to a superficial review of the documentary evidence in the record at all. In addition, seeking security for costs would require a motion within the motion, thus adding further complexity and a potential for further delay. Fourth, Justices Zabella and Rowe observe incidentally that their approach would prevent the drafting of arbitration agreements which exploit what they see as a significant loophole. The exploitative loophole they are worried about results from the ordinary operation of the rule of systematic referral to arbitration under an agreement which is governed by a foreign choice of law clause. This argument amounts to a critique of Dell itself. What is more, the critique is not grounded in legislative intent. There is no basis in the Arbitration Act or in the model law for distinguishing between arbitration agreements which include a foreign choice of law clause from those that do not. Fifth, Justices Abella and Rowe state that their exception applies where the fees to commerce arbitration proceedings are significant relative to the plaintiff's claim. However, they provide no guidance on what amount might be considered significant, and this court has no indication in the record regarding the size of Mr. Heller's claim. They also express a concern that Mr. Heller may not reasonably be able to reach the physical location of the arbitration. But as I explained in detail below, the choice of a foreign seat for arbitration should not be equated with the choice of the physical location of the arbitration proceedings. In fact, Uber has agreed to hold the proceedings in this case in Ontario. While it might be appropriate to disregard this concession on Uber's part for the purpose of determining whether the contract is valid, there is no reason to do so in relation to Justices Abella and Rowe's fact-specific exemption to the rule of systematic referral. There is therefore no basis for concluding that the ICC fees are significant relative to Mr. Heller's claim, given that the argument of the claim is unknown or for concluding that he will be unable to reach the physical location of the arbitration, given that Uber has agreed to hold it in his home jurisdiction. For these reasons, I do not accept that an exception should be created or applied in this case. If the Constitution requires such an exception, I would of course have to reconsider the issue, 
It is to that question which I now turn. C. Systematic referral and the Governor General's constitutional power to appoint Superior Court judges. My colleague Justice Brown refers to a constitutional dimension which, in his view, demands an exception to the rule of systematic referral where arbitration is inaccessible in the context of the party's relationship. I will confine my comments here to the question whether the Constitution requires such an exception, as I will consider Justice Brown's additional arguments regarding public policy below. While I agree that access to justice and the rule of law are important considerations, I respectfully disagree that the rule of systematic referral would, absent an exception, infringe or even engage Section 96 of the Constitution Act 1867. Section 96 of the Constitution Act assigns to the Governor General the power to appoint superior court's judges. This court has interpreted this provision as a restriction on the competence of provincial legislatures and parliament to enact legislation that abolishes the superior court or removes part of their core or inherent jurisdiction. In my view, legislation which facilitates the enforcement of agreements to submit to disputes to arbitration neither abolishes the superior courts nor removes any part of their core or inherent jurisdiction. As a preliminary matter, it is important to understand that the arbitration is not litigation by another name. Rather, it is a substitute for the party's own ability to negotiate or to reach agreement through mediation and is not based on a transference or denial of court power. Courts retain an oversight role throughout the arbitration process and afterward. Arbitration legislation and supporting doctrines such as the rule of systematic referral should not therefore be conceptualized as a limit on the supervisory jurisdiction of the courts. Instead, they should be seen as a positive reinforcement of the principle of party autonomy in that they require parties to an arbitration agreement to abide by their agreement. From this perspective, it is party autonomy, not statutory edict, which compels the parties to an arbitration agreement to refrain from litigation in the courts and to pursue the mode of dispute settlement to which they have personally agreed. The legislation merely gives the parties to an arbitration agreement machinery they can use to enforce their agreement. Section 96 of the Constitution Act and the unwritten principle of the rule of law are not engaged because Section 96 has never been construed and cannot be as forbidding two or more citizens from appointing another as their private judge to resolve their dispute. Further, as legislation similar in effect has been on the books for nearly 300 years without it being attacked as constitutionally outrageous, I think it is too late to take that point. Thus, no constitutional issue arises. In my view, the possibility that the agreed-upon terms of a given arbitration agreement may be ill-suited to a hypothetical claim for a small amount that is unrelated to the appeal now before the court does not elevate the issue from one of private law to one of constitutional law. Another relevant and important consideration is the type of remedy courts are to grant in order to enforce arbitration awards. A court stays a proceeding that has been commenced in contravention of an arbitration agreement. It does not dismiss the action. This has important practical ramifications because a stay can be lifted. Further, a court hearing a motion for a stay may order a conditional stay and specify how the parties are to proceed to arbitration. 
It is therefore wrong to conceptualize a successful motion for a stay as the end of the line for the party's pursuit of their claim. It would also be wrong to characterize private arbitral tribunals as statutory tribunals, which are amenable to judicial surveillance by virtue of Section 96 of the Constitution Act. A statutory tribunal is a body set up by statute and which has duties conferred on it by statute so that the parties are bound to resort to it. By contrast, arbitration is essentially a creature of contract, a contract in which the parties themselves charter a private arbitral tribunal for resolution of their disputes. Thus, the distinction between a statutory tribunal and a private arbitral tribunal is the greater autonomy which parties have and are free to exercise in the private arbitration contract. That is why this court's jurisprudence distinguishes between a statutory tribunal and a clearly consensual tribunal which owes its existence solely to the will of the parties. I would add that, even if Section 96 were considered to be engaged, the constitutional right to access to the courts is not absolute. The legislature has the power to impose conditions on how and when people have access to the courts. Any impediment to such access under the Arbitration Act or the International Act exists simply because the parties to an arbitration agreement must abide by their agreement. Payment of the hearing fees at issue in Trial Lawyers Association was a mandatory condition on litigants' access to the superior courts which had the effect of taking the choice of pursuing litigation in the superior courts away from a segment of society. Similarly, the Alberta Court of Appeals comment that insurmountable preconditions effectively amount to a total barrier to court access concerned court orders which bar vexatious litigants from commencing proceedings in the courts unless the litigants fulfill certain preconditions. By contrast, the Arbitration Act and the International Act deny access to the limited extent that they do only to those who by agreement have surrendered their constitutional right of access. Since the legislature has the competence to impose conditions on access, these humble conditions must be permissible. For these reasons, I conclude that the rule of systematic referral applies unaltered to Uber's motion for a stay. The general rule is that the parties must be referred to arbitration unless Mr. Heller's challenge to the validity of the arbitration clause can be characterized as a pure question of law or a question of mixed law and fact, which requires only a superficial review of the documentary evidence. If the arguments against the validity of the arbitration clause require more than a superficial review of the documentary evidence, that will be sufficient to decide the appeal. However, as the parties have made submissions on the merits of Mr. Heller's challenge to the validity of the arbitration clause, I will also comment on the merits of their arguments. Sub 5. Does determining whether the arbitration clause is valid require more than a superficial review of the documentary evidence? Three main arguments have been raised against the validity of the arbitration clause. Mr. Heller argues the arbitration clause is invalid because it is unconscionable and because it is contrary to the ESA. Justice Brown raises a separate argument that the arbitration clause is invalid because it is contrary to public policy. I address each of these arguments below in turn. A. The Doctrine of Unconscionability Despite Justice Sabella and Rowe's learned analysis of the theoretical underpinnings of the unconscionability doctrine, I am unfortunately unable to agree with their statement of that doctrine. 
In particular, I am concerned that their threshold for finding of inequality of bargaining power has been set so low as to be practically meaningless in the case of standard form contracts. Justices Abella and Rowe state that vulnerability in the contracting process may arise from dense or difficult to understand terms in the agreement. We also note that one situation in which a standard form contract might impair a party's ability to protect their interests would be if it contained provisions which were difficult to read or understand. I find this standard rather vague and illusory. I fear it might be open to abuse by a party to a standard form contract who chooses to enjoy the benefits of the agreement as long as it suits them, but who then chooses to rely on this opaque standard when called upon to honor an obligation, which it is not in their interest. As Justice Brown observes, a lower threshold for finding that there is inequality of bargaining power risks exposing the terms of every standard form contract to review in order to ensure that they are substantively reasonable. This would be an unwelcome development, as it would undermine private ordering and commercial certainty, which are important considerations in the law of contracts. I therefore agree with Justice Brown's able exposition of the unconscionability doctrine in the general law of contracts. However, an arbitration agreement engages unique considerations which require an analytical approach that differs from the one he takes in paragraph 172. In particular, Mr. Heller directs his unconscionability arguments specifically at the arbitration clause, which should be considered a separate and autonomous contract for this purpose. I will now analyze Mr. Heller's arguments and those of Justices Abella and Rowe in light of the components of the unconscionability doctrine identified by Justice Brown, which I understand to be, one, a significant inequality of bargaining power stemming from a weakness or vulnerability, two, a resulting improvident bargain, and three, the stronger party's knowledge of the weaker party's vulnerability. However, I add that I would reach the same conclusions if I were to apply the test set out by Justices Abella and Rowe. Significant inequality of bargaining power. The key question in relation to this component of the doctrine is whether the weaker party had a degree of vulnerability that had the potential to materially affect their ability through autonomous rational decision-making to protect their own interests, thereby undermining the premise of freedom of contract. The personal characteristics or attributes of the weaker party are a fundamental consideration in this regard. The vulnerability alleged by Mr. Heller relates to his high school education and his comparatively limited access to financial resources. Establishing these facts would require the court to consider testimonial evidence, which means that the rule of systematic referral is engaged and that the parties must be referred to arbitration. This conclusion suffices to dispense with Mr. Heller's unconscionability argument. However, I wish to address the question whether the testimonial evidence is adequate to support a finding of unconscionability on the merits. Even if the superficial review criterion did not apply, the testimonial evidence before this court is contradictory on the question as to whether Mr. Heller had the capacity to understand and appreciate the significance of the arbitration clause. Mr. Heller's evidence established that he is capable of understanding the significance of the arbitration clause, but that he simply declined to read it before agreeing to its terms. He was free to review the service agreement for as long as he wished before communicating his acceptance. As counsel for Uber demonstrated in cross-examination, 
Mr. Heller showed considerable sophistication by lodging over 300 complaints through Uber's internal dispute resolution procedure and by communicating with the media shortly after a change had been made to Uber's fee payment structure. There is nothing in the record to suggest that he was rushed into accepting the terms of the service agreement and no evidence regarding why he decided to become an Uber driver. There is accordingly no basis for finding that his capacity for autonomous, self-interested decision-making was compromised, or that the law's normal assumptions about free bargaining no longer hold true. Because this inquiry requires findings of fact of conflicting evidence, this issue cannot be resolved on the basis of the record before this court. Justices Abella and Rowe find that there was inequality of bargaining power in this case because the service agreement in which the arbitration clause is found is a standard form contract, and because it was not accompanied by information about the cost of mediation and arbitration proceedings administered by the ICC's dispute resolution bodies. Of course, these circumstances would not be sufficient to find that there was an inequality of bargaining power based on the approach articulated by Justice Brown, with which I agree. Nonetheless, I appreciate the reasons of Justices Abella and Rowe for what they do not say. They do not contend that an arbitration agreement in a standard form contract is itself unconscionable. Such a conclusion would conflict with the weight of authority from this court. At first blush, Justices Abella and Rowe's point that it would not be clear to a person reading the arbitration clause that the selection of the ICC's rules means that initiating the arbitration process would entail the payment of $14,500 U.S. dollars in fees has some force. On reflection, however, my view is that the individual should be expected to be aware that any form of dispute resolution, including litigation in the courts, comes with a price. A person cannot read an arbitration clause and reasonably assume that the process will be free of charge. It has not been shown that the ICC fees are out of step with the cost of pursuing litigation or of pursuing arbitration under a different set of rules for a claim involving an amount equivalent to the unknown amount of Mr. Heller's claim. I therefore find it difficult to accept Justice Isabella and Rowe's speculation that Mr. Heller would have had no reason to suspect that fees of this magnitude were required. With respect, they are effectively arguing that individuals have no reason to suspect that dispute settlement has a cost. To approach the matter as they do infantilizes individuals by viewing all of them as being bereft of autonomy and incapable of rational decision-making. There is ample evidence in the record to suggest that Mr. Heller is not such an individual. Further, although Justices Abella and Rowe do not expressly state that a standard form contract containing an arbitration clause is unconscionable, one wonders how a contract drafter could possibly anticipate the cumulative fees that would have had to be paid in every possible arbitration scenario, given the wide variety of disputes which could arise under an arbitration agreement. Arbitration is a private form of dispute resolution in which, generally speaking, the parties are required, at minimum, to pay for the arbitral tribunal's time and expenses and for the venue, as well as to pay certain other costs. Justices Abella and Rowe implicitly take the position that Uber should not have selected the ICC rules because, in their view, the ICC fees are substantially unfair. It is difficult to see how the drafter of a contract could anticipate the total of the fees to be paid in a non-institutional arbitration that would be conducted on an ad hoc basis under either the Arbitration Act or the International Act, 
which means that it is hard to see how an arbitration clause in a standard form contract could possibly be drafted in a way that would satisfy the requirements of Justices Abella and Rowe's approach to the unconscionability doctrine. Regrettably, I fear that the effect of their approach amounts to a sweeping restriction on arbitration clauses in standard form contracts, even if they did not intend such a consequence. This court has stated that deciding whether to restrict arbitration clauses as standard form contracts is a matter for the legislature. With respect, the approach taken by Justices Abella and Rowe to the doctrine of unconscionability is therefore inconsistent with the proper lawmaking role of the courts. In our democracy, it is the legislature and not the courts which is primarily responsible for law reform. Major changes in the law are best left to the legislature because reform should be considered with a wider view of how the new rule will operate in a broad generality of cases. A court of law may not be in a position to appreciate the economic, social, and other policy issues at stake. These concerns are heightened by the economic context of this appeal, which relates to the contractual arrangements of businesses operating in what some have styled the sharing economy. Enterprises with business models similar to that of Uber and the individuals in Mr. Heller's position are part of a vital and growing sector of Canada's economy, which could be stifled if the majority reduced threshold for inequality of bargaining power is adopted. This sector depends on standard form contracts that are agreed to electronically by businesses and the people who use their online platforms. Individuals in Mr. Heller's position may have reduced opportunities to generate income in the sector of the economy if businesses like Uber cannot be assured of certainty in their contractual arrangements, as certainty is essential for global business operations. This court is simply not in a position to know what the fallout from Justices Abella and Rowe's approach might be. It is not the role of the courts to establish policies where the legislature has declined or omitted to do so. Ontario's Ministry of Labor, Training and Skills Development recently undertook a comprehensive review of the ESA in order to address the changing nature of work, including the sharing economy. That review culminated in amendments to the ESA that were enacted in the Fair Workplaces Better Jobs Act. If the legislature was concerned about arbitration agreements in this sector's standard form digital contracts, it could easily have amended the ESA to restrict such clauses as it has in the case of consumer protection legislation. Whether the legislature's omission was an oversight or a deliberate policy choice, any decision to restrict or not to restrict standard form contracts containing arbitration clauses is a matter for the legislature, not the courts. In the end, whether Mr. Heller suffered from peculiar vulnerability that undermined his capacity to engage in rational, autonomous decision-making is a question of mixed law and fact which requires more than a superficial review of the documentary evidence. Therefore, the rule of systematic referral applies and the parties must be referred to arbitration. I will nonetheless consider the other components of unconscionability below. Improvident bargain. Mr. Heller's attack on the arbitration clause rests on three propositions. The place of arbitration clause forces him to travel to Amsterdam at his own expense, the choice of law clause excludes the application of the ESA, and the selection of the ICC rules entails the payment in advance of disproportionately high fees in order to initiate a dispute. I will address each of these propositions in turn, not because they could cumulatively add up to a substantially unfair bargain, 
but because, in my view, the first two are unpersuasive, which leads the third to stand on its own. Place of Arbitration Clause Mr. Heller equates the place of arbitration clause and the arbitration clause with a forum selection clause that requires him to travel to Amsterdam in order to pursue his claim. With respect, it is wrong to equate the designation of a foreign seat in an arbitration agreement with a forum selection clause. One major distinction relates to the fact that the discretion not to enforce a forum selection clause comes from the common law. By contrast, a court's power to decline to enforce an arbitration agreement is circumscribed by the exhaustive list in 7.2 of the Arbitration Act. The designation of a foreign place of arbitration is not one of the enumerated grounds for declining a stay. Another distinction stems from the fact that forum selection clauses purport to oust the jurisdiction of otherwise competent courts in favor of foreign jurisdictions. If enforced, such a clause requires a litigant to commence a proceeding in the foreign forum, which may indeed involve traveling to a foreign jurisdiction. The place or seat of arbitration by contrast is a legal concept which denotes the party's selection of a particular jurisdiction whose arbitration law governs proceedings and under whose law the arbitral award is made. The designation of a foreign jurisdiction as the place of arbitration is therefore akin to a choice of law clause for procedural aspects of the arbitration process. However, the place of arbitration is not synonymous with the location where the arbitration hearings take place. There is no obligation to actually conduct an arbitration at the place of the arbitration. Article 22 of the Model Law provides that an arbitral tribunal may meet and hear witnesses or submissions from the parties at any place it considers appropriate, regardless of the place on the arbitration selected by the parties. The Arbitration Act includes a substantively similar provision. Article 18 of the ICC Arbitration Rules provides that the arbitral tribunal may conduct hearings and meetings at any location it considers appropriate. In addition, Article 3.5 of the ICC Expedited Rules provides that the Arbitral Tribunal may decide the dispute solely on the basis of documentary evidence and written submissions, and that it may conduct hearings by video conference, telephone, or similar means of communication. In practice, it often happens that although the parties have agreed to arbitration in one jurisdiction, the arbitration proceedings are in fact conducted in other locations for the sake of convenience. It is true that the Model Law, the Arbitration Act, and the ICC Arbitration Rules leave the decision regarding the location of the proceedings to the Arbitral Tribunal, but there is no reason to presume that an Arbitral Tribunal would act arbitrarily and callously by compelling a party to travel overseas unnecessarily and at a great hardship. Indeed, there is good reason to assume otherwise. The Arbitration Act requires the Arbitral Tribunal to treat the parties equally and fairly. Further, Articles 22.1 and 22.4 of the ICC Arbitration Rules provide that the Arbitral Tribunal must make every effort to conduct the arbitration in an expeditious and cost-effective manner and must ensure that each party has a reasonable opportunity to present its case. I therefore see no basis for assuming that the Arbitral Tribunal would require Mr. Heller to travel to Amsterdam in order to participate in arbitration proceedings. Hearings, if any need to be conducted, can reasonably be expected either to be held in Ontario or to be conducted remotely. 
Further, this court should take judicial notice of the fact that modern communications technology makes it unnecessary for an Ontario resident to travel overseas in order to pay the ICC fees or to make initial representations to the arbitral tribunal. The arbitration clause thus cannot be impugned on the basis that the place of arbitration clause would require Mr. Heller to travel to a foreign jurisdiction in order to initiate a claim or to participate in the hearings, thereby incurring expenses, and any arguments to that effect cannot stand. I therefore see no basis for concluding that the place of arbitration clause favors Uber significantly at Mr. Heller's expense. Choice of Law Clause In light of the separability doctrine, it is critical for analytical purposes to distinguish between the validity of the service agreement or of one of its terms and the validity of the arbitration clause. The result is that the alleged invalidity of the choice of law clause on the basis that it is unconscionable does not affect the validity of the arbitration clause. Arguments directed at the alleged unfairness, whether substantive or procedural, of having the service agreement governed by a foreign law are therefore analytically distinct from those concerning alleged unfairness arising from the arbitration clause itself. As a result, Arguments directed at the choice of law clause are not a bar to Uber's motion for a stay. Approaching the validity of the arbitration clause in this fashion is consistent with the court's jurisprudence. In Seidel, the arbitration agreement provided that any claim, dispute, or controversy shall be determined by arbitration, and that by so agreeing, Ms. Seidel waived any right she may have had to commence or participate in any class action against TELUS Mobility. This court declined to view the class action waiver as separate from the arbitration provision because the contract was structured internally to make the class action waiver dependent on the arbitration provision. By contrast, in the instant case, the choice of law clause is not dependent on arbitration being the party's chosen means to settle disputes. Despite the fact that the text of the choice of law clause appears in the same paragraph of the service agreement as the text of the arbitration clause, the two clauses have very different legal effects and should be considered to be separate. It would be different if Mr. Heller was arguing that unfairness results from having the arbitration clause itself governed by Dutch law, but he has neither argued nor proven that to be the case. As with his arguments regarding the ESA, which I will address below, the alleged invalidity of the choice of law clause has no bearing on the validity of the arbitration clause. Even if the separability doctrine did not apply, there is nothing unusual or offensive about a choice of law clause in an international contract. Uber is a company with global operations and is headquartered in the Netherlands. Its selection of Dutch law to govern the contract is merely an attempt at legal risk management designed to ensure a degree of certainty in its operations. For a company with global operations, this serves a valid commercial purpose which courts should not interfere with lightly. A court that does so risks undermining the certainty that is needed in conducting international commerce. Further, although the choice of law clause does not confer a benefit on Uber, namely legal certainty in the company's global operations, it is unclear that it does so at any cost to Mr. Heller, given that neither party has proven the foreign law, and as I will explain below when I address Mr. Heller's arguments with respect to the ESA, it remains to be seen whether the arbitral tribunal would apply the ESA in any event. Selection of Institutional Procedural Rules 
As I have refuted Mr. Heller's arguments about the effect of the place of arbitration clause and the choice of law clause, all that remains of his unconscionability argument is the submission that the selection of the ICC rules imposes the payment of disproportionately high fees, which total 14,500 US dollars or approximately 19,000 Canadian dollars. This disproportionality argument has two branches. One, the ICC fees are a disincentive to pursue hypothetical claims for small amounts, and two, the ICC fees are disproportionate to Mr. Heller's ability to finance the pursuit of a claim for a larger amount, because his income as an Uber driver is approximately 20,800 to 31,200 Canadian a year. I will address each of these branches in turn, as I consider them to be distinct arguments for analytical purposes. In my view, any commitment to submit disputes to arbitration should be regarded as generally imposing mutual obligations on both parties. It does not impose an obligation on one party in favor of the other. Rather, it embodies the argument of both parties that, if any dispute arises with regard to the obligations which one party has undertaken to the other, such dispute shall be settled by a tribunal of their own constitution. An arbitration agreement thus involves a mutuality of exchange. If an arbitration agreement involves a mutuality of exchange, I fail to see how mandatory arbitration fees which apply to disputes initiated by either party would not involve a similar mutuality of exchange. The ICC fees make pursuing a claim for a small amount just as uneconomic for Uber as for Mr. Heller. By contrast, a one-sided arbitration clause which requires one party to submit disputes to arbitration while the other party retains the right to litigate might not involve a mutuality of exchange. Therefore, to the extent that any unfairness results from the imposition of high fees on hypothetical claims for small amounts, I do not consider this situation to be sufficiently unfair, given the mutuality of the exchange. In any event, the actual amount of Mr. Heller's claim is unknown. While it is possible, from the point of view that anything can happen, to discern from the arbitration clause itself that a dispute over a small amount could, in theory, arise, establishing that such a dispute is likely or foreseeable under the contract would require the production and review of testimonial evidence, thereby engaging the rule of systematic referral. To proceed otherwise would be to hold that a contract is invalid on the basis of speculation. An imbalance might be observed between the size of the fees and Mr. Heller's ability to finance a claim for a larger amount, because Uber clearly has greater financial resources than he does. However, this aspect of Mr. Heller's argument requires the production and review of testimonial evidence, which means that the rule of systematic referral applies. Even if this court were to consider Mr. Heller's testimonial evidence, the improvidence of a transaction has to be measured as of the time the contract is formed. The court has no evidence regarding Mr. Heller's financial position at the time he entered into the service agreement. The only information the court has regarding his financial means is the income he derived as an Uber driver after entering into the service agreement. Additionally, the court does not have any evidence before it regarding the availability of third-party funding for arbitration or the comparable cost of, for example, pursuing a class proceeding. And I repeat, the size of Mr. Heller's individual claim is unknown. There is simply no basis for concluding that the ICC fees render his rights under the service agreement unenforceable. Knowledge A finding that Uber had, at minimum, constructive knowledge of Mr. Heller's peculiar vulnerability is required 
in order for a court to conclude that the arbitration clause is unconscionable. In the case at Barr, the Court of Appeal found that Uber had such knowledge, but I am of the view that it erred in principle regarding the kind of vulnerability which would be sufficient to establish inequality in bargaining power, and that this error tainted its findings with respect to knowledge. The Court of Appeal found that Uber knew its drivers were vulnerable to the market strength of Uber. Uber's knowledge that it is a large company which uses standard form contracts does not suffice in this regard because contracts of adhesion, including agreements to arbitrate, are generally enforceable. The vulnerability alleged by Mr. Heller relates to his comparatively limited access to financial resources and the fact that he has only a high school education. Given that the driver app is widely accessible to members of the public, it would have been impossible for Uber to be aware of Mr. Heller's specific income and education level when he first decided to become an Uber driver. Uber could not have known that he intended to use the driver app as his primary source of income. Given that Uber drivers are not required to use the app at any given time and may therefore use it casually as a means to supplement their income. There is a lack of evidence as to why Mr. Heller chose to sign up for the driver app and why he chose to adopt it as his primary source of income and not seek other work. There is also no evidence of his income at the time he entered into the contract. In any event, such questions would require the production and review of testimonial evidence, which would lead the court to stray impermissibly beyond the documentary record. Whether the unconscionability doctrine renders the arbitration clause unenforceable is thus a question of mixed law and fact that requires more than a superficial review of the documentary evidence. The party should therefore be referred to arbitration. Application of unconscionability to individual terms of an arbitration agreement. In a footnote to their reasons, Justices Abella and Rowe assert a contested point of substantive law, that the unconscionability doctrine may be applied to individual terms of an agreement. I agree with Justice Brown that the unconscionability doctrine should not be applied to individual terms of a contract, but I take issue with how Justices Abella and Rowe apply their approach to the unconscionability of individual terms to the contractual arrangements now before the court. If Justices Abella's and Rowe's approach were to be applied in light of the separability doctrine, which, at Para 96, they purport to accept, they would be led to the conclusion that the place of arbitration clause and the selection of the ICC rules are individually unconscionable terms of the arbitration clause. In their opinion, this does not render the arbitration clause itself unenforceable, because they assert that the unconscionability doctrine can be applied to individual terms without rendering the entire agreement unenforceable. Even if the separability doctrine did not apply, it would be arbitrary to conclude that the individual term committing to parties to submit disputes to arbitration is invalid on the basis that the clause providing for it is close to clauses providing for other supposedly unenforceable terms, involving the selection of certain institutional procedural rules for arbitration proceedings, of a foreign seat for such proceedings, and of a foreign law to govern their agreement. Justices Abella and Rowe relieve Mr. Heller of his commitment to submit disputes to arbitration on the basis that they find the terms for arbitration offensive, even though the commitment to arbitrate is itself left unimpeached. This result is impractical from a commercial standpoint, as well as being unjustified by Justices Abella and Rowe's own approach to unconscionability. Therefore, it follows from Justices Abella and Rowe's approach to the doctrine of unconscionability that the arbitration clause is valid and enforceable. 
I will now consider whether Mr. Heller's other arguments relating to whether the arbitration clause is invalid under the ESA requires more than a superficial review of the documentary evidence in the record. The ESA. My colleagues declined to address the ESA issues because they would decide the appeal on the basis of unconscionability or in the case of Justice Brown on the basis of public policy. As I do not agree with their disposition of those issues, and for the sake of completeness, I must also analyze Mr. Heller's arguments with respect to the question whether the arbitration clause is invalid under the ESA. Mr. Heller raises two arguments in support of his position that the arbitration clause is invalid under the ESA. First, he argues that the arbitration clause amounts to an unlawful contracting out of an employment standard because he says it prevents him from accessing the ESA's statutory enforcement mechanisms. Second, he submits that the choice of Dutch law to govern the service agreement also amounts to an unlawful contracting out of an employment standard. Although these two arguments are distinct, they suffer from the same fatal flaw. For the purposes of both of them, Mr. Heller submits that it is appropriate to presume that he is an employee, which means the ESA applies. In Seidel, this court was able to apply the Business Practices and Consumer Protection Act to find that the arbitration agreement at issue was partially invalid because a superficial review of the documentary evidence was sufficient to establish the applicability of the legislation. By contrast, the service agreement expressly states that it is an agreement to access and license software that it does not create an employment relationship. The question whether Mr. Heller is an employee goes to the heart of the dispute between the parties. The Court of Appeal recognized this issue was central to the dispute, and it repeatedly relied on an assumption that Mr. Heller is an employee in its analysis. However, a court hearing a motion for a stay cannot make such an assumption without usurping the role of the arbitral tribunal. This means that the provision of the ESA on which Mr. Heller relies in support of a determination of invalidity of the arbitration clause is unavailable to him for the purposes of this motion. A court cannot determine that an arbitration agreement is invalid pursuant to Section 5 without first finding that the parties involved are an employer or agent of an employer and an employee or agent of an employee. Whether Mr. Heller is an employee within the meaning of the ESA is a complex question of mixed law and fact which cannot be decided on the basis of the record before the court, nor should it be. The rule of systematic referral applies, and the parties should be referred to arbitration. Nonetheless, because the parties have made submissions on the merits of the challenge under the ESA, I find that it will be helpful to comment on some of the legal aspects of this challenge. Contracting out of the enforcement mechanisms by means of an arbitration clause. Mr. Heller argues that the arbitration clause amounts to a contracting out of an employment standard in that it precludes him from filing a complaint with the Ministry of Labor pursuant to Section 96 of the ESA in which he would allege that he has been misclassified. The flaw in his argument is that the ability to file a complaint under Section 96 of the ESA is not an employment standard. An employment standard is a requirement or prohibition under the ESA that applies to an employer for the benefit of the employee. Even if I assume, without deciding, that Section 96 of the ESA operates for the benefit of the employee, it clearly does not require an employer to do, or prohibit the employer from doing, anything. It therefore does not provide for an employment standard. 
In addition, nothing in the record indicates that Mr. Heller has attempted to make a complaint under Section 96 of the ESA. Instead, he filed a multi-million dollar class proceeding. It may be possible to interpret the arbitration clause such that it does not apply to Section 96 of the Act. As the parties expressly represented in the service agreement that they are not in an employment relationship, it may be open to a court or an arbitral tribunal to conclude that Section 96 of the ESA was not reasonably within their contemplation. I note in this regard that where a term of a contract is capable of two constructions, one which renders the term lawful and one which renders it unlawful, the construction which supports the validity and legality of the term is to be preferred. Mr. Heller also argues that the ESA precludes arbitration as a means of pursuing claims under the Act. The opposite is true, however, as there was no express prohibition on arbitration in the ESA, and the ESA cannot be assumed to exclude arbitral jurisdiction unless it expressly so states. When the legislature wants to exclude arbitration, it is able to express itself in very clear language, and it has in fact done so in other statutes. Further, the objective of the ESA's enforcement provisions is to make redress available, where it is appropriate at all, expeditiously and cheaply. Arbitration is entirely consistent with this objective. Given arbitration's inherent flexibility, this Court's numerous statements encouraging and professing the benefits of arbitration and the legislature's clear pro-arbitration stance as indicated in the Arbitration Act and the International Act, I would be very slow to conclude that arbitration is excluded as an acceptable means of dispute resolution under the ESA. Contracting out of the ESA by means of a choice of law clause. Mr. Heller submits that the arbitration clause amounts to a contracting out of the entire ESA as a result of the choice of law clause. However, in light of the separability doctrine, the choice of law clause must be understood as part of the service agreement, while the arbitration clause must be considered to be a separate contract which is independent of the service agreement. Therefore, even if I were to assume, without so deciding, that the choice of law clause is invalid, a finding to that effect would not, on its own, render the arbitration clause invalid, because an arbitration agreement generally survives the invalidity of the underlying contract, or of a term therein. Further, the ESA only renders invalid the individual terms of an employment agreement, which amount to a contracting out of an employment standard, not the entire employment agreement. Therefore, this is not one of those cases in which the invalidity of the underlying contract also entails the invalidity of the arbitration agreement. The alleged invalidity of the choice of law clause does not undermine the validity of the arbitration clause. Therefore, Mr. Heller's argument is not a bar to Uber's motion for a stay. In addition, since the service agreement expressly states that it is an agreement to license software and that it does not create an employment relationship, it may be open to the arbitral tribunal to find that the contracting parties did not intend to exclude the operation of mandatory employment legislation in the jurisdiction in which the contract was to be performed. Given that the contract did not purport to create an employment relationship, it is unlikely that the drafters contemplated the possibility that the employment legislation would apply to the contract. In any event, the party's choice of law does not oust mandatory rules particularly mandatory statutory rules that are applicable in a jurisdiction with a strong nexus to the dispute, in this case, Ontario. While the parties produced no evidence on whether an arbitral tribunal seated in the Netherlands and applying Dutch law would apply the ESA, 
It does not follow merely from the choice of Dutch law that the ESA would not be applied in relation to the dispute. Simply assuming that the ESA will not apply smacks of the old common law mistrust of arbitration, which the Arbitration Act was intended to put to rest. In conclusion on the ESA issue, neither of Mr. Heller's arguments warrants holding that the arbitration clause is invalid, as the rules of systematic referral negates both of them, and, in any event, the substance of his arguments does not justify the relief he seeks. Doctrine of Public Policy My colleague Justice Brown proposes to create a new common law rule that contractual provisions which have the effect of prohibiting access to dispute resolution are contrary to public policy. He concludes that the selection of the ICC rules in this case is contrary to public policy because the ICC fees are disproportionate in light of the party's relationship and that this renders the arbitration clause itself invalid. Like Justices Abella and Rowe's unconscionability analysis, Justice Brown's approach is dependent on testimonial evidence for the purpose of establishing that the ICC fees are disproportionate relative to the amount that would likely be at issue in dispute under the service agreement and to the income Mr. Heller earns as an Uber driver. His approach, therefore, requires more than a superficial review of the documentary evidence and the parties should be referred to arbitration. Nonetheless, even if the rule of systematic referral did not apply, I also respectfully disagree with the legal and factual merits of the public policy analysis Justice Brown expounds in his carefully drafted reasons. The common law of contracts is fundamentally committed to ensuring the freedom of contracting parties to pursue their individual self-interest. Thus, the doctrine of public policy should be invoked only in clear cases in which the harm to the public is substantially incontestable and does not depend on the idiosyncratic inferences of a few judicial minds. This is a high hurdle to overcome. With respect, I am not persuaded that the public policy concerns my colleague identifies justify overriding the very strong public interest in the enforcement of contracts. In this regard, I view the Arbitration Act and the International Act as strong statements of public policy which favor enforcing arbitration agreements. Deciding whether to submit disputes to arbitration or to pursue litigation in the courts involves trade-offs. In arbitration, the parties trade the procedural certainty of the courts and the opportunity to appeal an unfavorable decision for the procedural flexibility, expediency, and efficiency of arbitration. There is no guarantee that arbitration will always yield the correct decision, but the courts are equally unable to offer that guarantee. Deciding whether this trade-off is in the party's best interests rests with them, not with the courts. Just as there are many valid commercial reasons for parties to use exclusion clauses, including to allocate risks, there are also many valid commercial reasons for parties to use arbitration agreements in which they select a particular international arbitral institution's procedural rules. One such reason might be to have the parties share the risk that recourse to arbitration may not be economical in the case of a claim for a small amount, although Mr. Heller would of course be free to use Uber's internal dispute resolution procedure as he already has many times. However, should a claim for a large amount arise, the parties would have access to a world-class institution to aid in resolving the dispute. This is a valid contractual arrangement with which courts should not interfere. Given the mutuality of exchange the arbitration clause involves, it bears no resemblance to the clause at issue in Nova Maze Limited and Cut Price Deli Limited, which was clearly one-sided. 
In any event, the pursuit of access to justice and the enforcement of arbitration agreements are often complementary objectives. Indeed, one of the objectives of the Arbitration Act is to further access to justice by encouraging the use of arbitration. Arbitration enhances access to justice because it can be more expedient and less costly than litigation. The policy that parties to a valid arbitration agreement should abide by their agreement furthers access to justice by preventing delaying tactics which hamper access to dispute resolution. By contrast, widening the grounds for judicial intervention, as Justice Brown would do, is as likely to undermine access to justice as to promote such access, because it would incentivize litigation as a delaying tactic, thereby increasing the time for and cost of dispute resolution. While it is often complementary to other legislative objectives, the pursuit of access to justice should not be permitted to overwhelm the other important objectives pursued by the Arbitration Act. The Act also pursues other important objectives. It gives effect to party autonomy by permitting parties to craft their own dispute resolution mechanism through consensual agreement. Moreover, concluding that an arbitration agreement is invalid on public policy grounds without impeaching the party's consent to the agreement undermines another objective of the Arbitration Act, that of holding parties to their commitment to submit disputes to arbitration where they have agreed to do so. Similarly, the rule of law is not a tool by which to avoid legislative initiatives of which one is not in favor. On the contrary, the rule of law requires courts to give effect to the Constitution's text and apply, by whatever its terms, legislation that conforms to that text. As a motion for a stay in favor of arbitration does not impinge on the Governor General's power to appoint judges under Section 96 of the Constitution Act, I see no reason why this court should not seek to give effect to the legislature's objective as embodied in the Arbitration Act and the International Act. Further, when considering whether or how to refashion old common law doctrines regarding arbitration, this court should, in my view, follow its decision in Wellman to embrace a more modern approach to arbitration law. According to this approach, arbitration is an autonomous, self-contained, self-sufficient process pursuant to which the parties agree to have their disputes resolved by an arbitrator, not by the courts. Therefore, doctrines based on the notion that only superior courts are capable of granting remedies for legal disputes should no longer be applied. This court should not seek to roll back the tide of history by breathing new life into authorities which are irreconcilable with the modern approach to arbitration. I appreciate Justice Brown's able attempt to provide a new conceptual justification for the common law doctrine. However, when this new justification is considered alongside his reformulation of the substantive doctrine, these innovations cannot be said to amount to an incremental development in the law. Rather, in my view, this is an entirely new common law rule governing the validity of arbitration agreements. Additionally, the comparative suitability of litigation, arbitration, and other methods of dispute resolution for various classes of persons in various circumstances is a complex, polycentric policy decision that involves a host of different interests, objectives, and solutions. Such questions do not fall to be answered by the courts, as they are instead matters for the elected policymakers who sit in the legislature. My concern about the limits of the court's institutional capacity to fully consider questions in this regard are heightened by Justice Brown's reliance on Section 96 of the Constitution Act, which risks permanently restraining the legislature's competence in future 
to enact policies which promote access to civil justice outside the courtroom context. Although I appreciate Justice Brown's attempt to corral his proposed rule, public policy is an unruly horse, and I fear that once this court sits astride that horse, judges may be led back to the days where they displayed overt hostility to arbitration, treating it as a second-tier method of dispute resolution. Finally, while Justice Brown maintains that the ICC fees bar Mr. Heller from bringing a claim of any size against Uber, there is no evidence before this court regarding the actual size of Mr. Heller's claim against Uber or the possible availability of third-party funding for the pursuit of his claim. Neither is there any evidence of his income at the time of the formulation of the contract. There is, however, an insufficient evidentiary basis for Justice Brown's conclusion given the testimonial evidence in the record. The analysis requires an understanding of the party's ability to finance the pursuit of arbitration proceedings and of the comparative availability of litigation funding. As the record currently stands, it is difficult to accept that approximately $19,000 Canadian in fees for the pursuit of arbitration can be said to amount to a total bar on dispute resolution in the case where the costs awarded to Mr. Heller in the Court of Appeal amounted to $20,000. Given the inadequacy of the record, this appeal differs markedly from Limer, in which the Alberta Court of Appeal found that a court order barring an undischarged bankrupt from commencing or continuing court proceedings until he paid all cost awards against him in full constituted an insurmountable precondition to court access. Therefore, I cannot conclude, as Justice Brown does, that the ICC fees act as an insurmountable precondition that prevent Mr. Heller from commencing a claim. I conclude that the selection of the ICC rules in this case is not contrary to public policy, because each of the arguments against the validity of the arbitration clause requires more than a superficial review of the documentary evidence in the record, the party should be referred to arbitration. The remedial options available to a court on the motion for a stay remain to be considered, however. Possible Remedies on a Motion for a Stay my colleagues put forward different theories to conclude that the arbitration clause is invalid. Even though none of their theories impugn the party's basic commitment to submit disputes to arbitration, my colleagues find that the commitment is invalid. They appear to conceptualize the available relief as involving a stark choice between rigidly enforcing the arbitration agreement and finding that the entire arbitration agreement is invalid. In my view, the pro-arbitration stance that has been taken by legislatures across Canada and which is embodied in this court's jurisprudence supports a generous approach to remedial options which will facilitate the arbitration process. Two such options are one, ordering a continual stay of proceedings, and two, applying the doctrine of severance. I address each of these options below. Conditional stay of proceedings. In the exceptions in Section 7.2 of the Arbitration Act or Article 18.1 of the Model Law, if the exceptions in Section 7.2 of the Arbitration Act or Article 8.1 of the Model Law do not apply, the legislation directs a stay of the proceedings. A stay is mandatory in such circumstances, but the Arbitration Act and the International Act are silent as to what conditions, if any, may be imposed on the stay. However, Section 106 of the Courts of Justice Act, which Uber cited in its Notice of Motion, provides that a court may stay a proceeding on such terms as it considers just. 
Although it will usually be unnecessary for a court to order a conditional stay, it may be appropriate to do so to ensure procedural fairness in the arbitration process. I caution that a court should be careful not to impose conditions which impinge on the decision-making jurisdiction of the arbitral tribunal. Nonetheless, in the period before the appointment of the arbitral tribunal, a condition which facilitates the arbitration process can protect the tribunal's jurisdiction by ensuring that the parties are able to proceed with the arbitration. Courts hearing motions for stays and for referral to arbitration have ordered conditional stays in the past. As was the case in Eberfreit and Continental Resources, such conditions support one of the purposes of arbitration agreements and of modern arbitration legislation, that of proceeding with dispute resolution in a timely manner rather than delaying progress in the courts. In this regard, I find that the following comments of Appeal Justice Gerwing from Fuller Austin Court of Appeal at paragraph 5 on the interpretation of Saskatchewan's legislation implementing the model law are persuasive. Quote, in most stays, the party requesting the extraordinary indulgence of the court must act with expedition to facilitate justice. Particularly where remedies of an unusual nature, such as commercial arbitration, are permitted to circumvent litigants' normal access to the court or delay it, it is for the purpose of facilitating and not delaying justice. As in most stays, common sense indicates that the successful applicant for a stay cannot use it as it were a permanent way of ending the matter by deliberate inattention to pursuing the course of action which justified the granting of the stay. While we do not indicate expressly in our reasons this requirement, that reasonable steps be taken, we agree with the interpretation placed by the chamber judge below that this is implicit." End quote. Mr. Heller has given sworn evidence that he cannot afford the ICC fees which must be paid in order to initiate ICA proceedings. In light of Mr. Heller's particular circumstances, I would impose a condition that Uber advance the filing fees to enable him to initiate such proceedings. I would leave the decision as to who should ultimately bear those costs to the arbitral tribunal. In this regard, Rule 38 of the ICC arbitration rules empowers the arbitral tribunal to make decisions on costs at a time during the proceeding and to decide which party should bear the costs of the final award. This condition would be consistent both with the principle of party autonomy and with the legislature's intent because it would facilitate the arbitration process. As it would merely be an interim measure, it would not change the substantive rights and obligations of the parties pursuant to the arbitration clause. It would therefore be consistent with Section 17.1 of the Arbitration Act and 16.1 of the Model Law because it would leave the decision on the question of the validity of the arbitration clause to the arbitral tribunal. Doctrine of Severance While granting a conditional stay is sufficient for my purposes to decide the appeal, there is one further important aspect of Uber's submissions which Justices Abella and Rowe do not address in their reasons. In oral argument, counsel for Uber suggested that, if part of the arbitration clause was found to be unenforceable, this court should sever the unenforceable portions of the agreement and enforce the remainder. I agree. Compelling policy considerations support a generous application of the doctrine of severance in cases in which parties have clearly indicated an intent to settle any disputes through arbitration but in which some aspects of their arbitration agreement have been found to be unenforceable. Where doing so is practical, courts should strive to give effect to the party's intentions by severing unenforceable terms and referring the parties to arbitration. 
The doctrine of severance takes two forms, one, notional severance, and two, blue pencil severance. Notional severance involves reading down a contractual provision so as to make it legal and enforceable. Blue pencil severance consists of removing the illegal part of a contractual provision. Whereas notional severance calls for the application of a bright-line test of illegality, blue pencil severance can be effected where the court can strike out the portion of the contract it wants to remove by drawing a line through it without affecting the meaning of the part that remains. In deciding whether to apply the doctrine of severance, a court should also consider whether it would be both commercially practical and consistent with the party's intentions for it to enforce the remainder of the arbitration agreement. The fundamental aspect of an arbitration agreement is a clear commitment by both parties to settle any disputes by arbitration. Therefore, where the party's intention to submit disputes to arbitration is clearly established, applying the doctrine of severance will usually be consistent with their intentions. Further, courts will consider the context of the contracted issue and any relevant policy considerations when assessing whether and how to sever provisions. The Arbitration Act and the International Act are both legislative statements of public policy which encourage the use of arbitration and favor holding parties to their commitment to submit disputes to arbitration. The doctrine of severance advances these policies by ensuring that the party's intentions are not defeated by shortcomings in their selection of the terms for the arbitration process. In Shafron, Justice Rothstein cautioned courts to take a restrained approach to severance because severance interferes with the rights of parties to freely contract and to choose the words that determine their obligations and rights. However, different considerations arise in assessing arbitration agreements because arbitration itself is a party-driven form of dispute resolution. Were an application of an arbitration agreement to be severed, the parties would still be free to agree on a replacement for it. For example, if certain procedural rules were severed, they could agree on other existing procedural rules or on a procedure of their own. Severance does not take the choice away. In fact, it furthers party autonomy by ensuring that the parties can have access to their chosen means of dispute resolution. Severance will rarely, if ever, change the fundamental nature of the party's agreement, which was to settle disputes by arbitration. The practice in other countries is to sever unenforceable provisions while still giving effect to the arbitration clause whenever possible. Thus, the overwhelming majority of national court decisions uphold the validity of international arbitration agreements even after invalidating one or more terms of those agreements. This court's jurisprudence supports upholding the validity of an arbitration clause where practical. In Seidel, this court found that the arbitration clause at issue was inconsistent with the BPCPA. The consumer had commenced a proposed class proceeding in respect of claims under the Act as well as other causes of action. The court found the arbitration clause to be invalid only to the extent that it applied to the Act's claims, and the clause in question was barred by the Act. The court found the arbitration clause to be invalid only to the extent that it applied to BPCPA claims, as the clause in question was barred by that Act in order to stay in relation to other claims, thereby referring them to arbitration. The court's remedial approach in Seidel may be viewed as an application of notional severance to the arbitration agreement because the court in effect granted relief which was equivalent to writing in a term excluding the BPCPA claims from the scope of the arbitration agreement instead of holding that the entire agreement was invalid. 
Further, in Wellman, this court stated that courts must show due respect for arbitration agreements and, more broadly, for arbitration, thus endorsing the view that the law should favor giving effect to arbitration agreements and that arbitration should be encouraged. In the instant case, the party's commitment to submit disputes to arbitration is clear. The selection of the ICC rules is neither contrary to public policy nor unconscionable, but if it were so, the appropriate remedy would be for the court to apply blue pencil severance and strike the selection of the ICC rules, leaving it to Uber and Mr. Heller to agree on an arbitration procedure, or the arbitral tribunal to decide how to proceed. The same would be the case for the place of arbitration clause. This approach is more consistent with the party's intentions and with the legislature's intent than simply holding that the entire arbitration agreement is invalid. Given that my colleagues did not seem to take issue with the actual selection of arbitration as a mode of dispute settlement or with the requirement to attempt mediation first, it would be inappropriate to sever those aspects of the arbitration clause. The substance of Mr. Heller's arguments and of those of my colleagues relates to the ICC fees which result from the selection of the ICC rules and to the designation of a foreign seat for the arbitration. I repeat that I find that the ICC rules in the place of arbitration clause are valid, but if I had found that they were unenforceable, I would have applied blue pencil severance to rewrite the arbitration clause. If the parties were then unable to agree on how to proceed, the Arbitration Act and the model law contain detailed provisions to assist in the enforcement of an arbitration agreement where the parties are unable to agree on the details. The facts of this case illustrate a situation in which severance is needed in order to prevent commercially absurd results. My colleagues take issue with ICC fees in the context of a hypothetical dispute for a small amount. While I appreciate that such a dispute could arise from the service agreement, defeating the party's commitment to submit disputes to arbitration on the basis of this hypothetical case is absurd, given that the dispute actually before the court concerns a proposed class action proceeding for $400 million, and that the amount of Mr. Heller's individual claim is as yet unknown. Approaching the enforceability of arbitration agreements in this fashion compromises the certainty upon which commercial entities rely in structuring their global operations. The commitment to submit disputes to arbitration should be upheld. Any other result would be commercially impractical. Finally, I note that, since Justices Abella and Rowe would apply the unconscionability doctrine to individual terms, they are, in reality, applying blue pencil severance by another name. However, they do not explain why they have chosen to strike the entire arbitration clause, and perhaps, although this is unclear, the choice of law clause as well, instead of the specific individual terms they find to be unconscionable. Part 6. Conclusion. For these reasons, I would allow the appeal and order a conditional stay of the proceedings. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at legallistening.com. 
Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.